Would you turn with me, please, to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. John's purpose, as you know, has been to establish beyond any question that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, the response to that claim is to believe it or not. Last week we looked at this uh, stupendous sign, that of the resurrection of Jesus, which was intended to once for all authenticate Jesus' Messiahship. And at the response to that uh, sign, according to verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Not to, merely to report the incident of the resurrection of Lazarus, but rather to get Jesus into deeper trouble. And that's precisely what happened. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now these are odd bedfellows uh, indeed, because the chief priests and the Sadducees are chief priests and the Pharisees rarely got together on anything. They were on opposite ends of the uh, theological spectrum. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees, and the Pharisees couldn't agree with them about anything. It would be like putting Democrats and Republicans together in order to work on some sort of project. They normally would not get together for any reason whatever. But they did on this occasion out of their mutual hatred for Jesus. They convened the council, and they began to discuss what they would do. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place, that is, our temple, and our nation. They had tried everything to silence Jesus. They had expressed their disapproval. They taught against him. They excommunicated him. But he continued to teach, and people continued to respond to his teaching. And they were afraid that, uh, that Jesus would cause a riot in Palestine, and the Romans would come and destroy their temple and, and take away their nation. Then one of them, namely Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. Caiaphas was, had, was the high priest, had been the high priest. For the, for the past 12 uh, years, but as John puts it, he was the priest at that time. He spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. That's typical of Caiaphas. He was a very rude and arrogant man. You fellows, he says, don't know anything. You don't know anything at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, it's either Jesus or the Jews, and Jesus has to go. The one man that he speaks of here is Jesus. So essentially what he's doing is counsel the Sanhedrin to kill the Lord. There's no question about the uh, purpose of this statement. But as John notes in hindsight, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Caiaphas was an unwilling and unwit unwitting prophet. He predicted that uh, one man would die for the nation, which indeed he did. And not only for that nation, not only for Israel, but also for the scattered children of God. That, uh, that's us folks here in Boise. 
the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. We got in on the deal. We became a part of this nation because of Jesus' death. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The die was cast. They issued a warrant for his arrest. It was only a matter of time before he would be captured. Therefore, verse 54, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village named, uh, called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Ephraim was near the Judean wilderness where Jesus could have escaped if he needed to. And he stayed there for a time with his disciples, uh, teaching them. And you have to understand that Jesus didn't run for his life because he was afraid. It was because he and the Father were orchestrating the Passover plot. Hugh Schoenfeld notwithstanding. There was a, a Passover plot, but it was not the disciples who plotted his death, burial, and resurrection. It was our Lord himself. The, the leaders of the Jewish nation were running about like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to organize this whole affair, and they, they couldn't get it together. And, and our Lord himself put it together because it was absolutely essential that he die on the Passover, at the Passover feast, as the Passover lamb. I think for myself... What the chief priests and Pharisees wanted was to imprison Jesus, capture him, put him in jail, hold him over the Passover period because they didn't want to ruin this festive occasion, and then after the Passover put him to death. But our Lord planned his own death, and uh, it was very important to him that he die on the Passover as the Passover lamb. So he wasn't hiding out of fear. He was operating according to a plan. Now, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the, from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what, what do you think? He isn't coming, is he? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Josephus, the... Uh, Jewish historian reports that something like three million Jews would throng Jerusalem at this time. Pilgrims came from all over the, uh, the ancient world and gathered in the holy city for this festive uh, occasion. Three million or so. And Jesus' name is on every, every lip. They were looking for him. They wanted to see him. They had heard about him. That's uh, so much like us. We, we like to see famous people. We like to eyeball them. We say we... We hear about them, but uh, we want to see them. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem. Our uh, youngest son, Joshua, used to play on a little league team with Eldridge Cleaver's son, Maceo Cleaver. Cleaver's lived right down the street from us. And uh, he had just come back from Algeria and was under a federal indictment. And uh, people would come to the little league games not to see the game, but to see Eldridge Cleaver. They wanted to see this, uh, this, this well-known known man. And uh, the question very often was, uh, is he really going to show up? That's what they were saying about Jesus. They knew this man, a warrant had been issued for his arrest, and the text makes it very clear. They really didn't expect him to show up, but they were hoping that he would because they wanted to see him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now, remember Bethany, just over the hill from Jerusalem, less than two miles. So he's moving closer to Jerusalem and closer to his own death. It's within a week now of his death. 
John very often arranges his text to show us the contrast between the hostility of the Jews and the love for other people. Now, by Jews, I don't mean Jews in general, but the leadership of the nation, the clergy, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And on this occasion, he arranges the story so we can see the hostility of the Jews in Jerusalem, but the hospitality that was granted to him by the people that that really loved him. We're told that, that they had a dinner in his honor in Bethany. Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Now, the the other gospel writers tell us that this dinner took place at, at the house of Simon the leper. We have no idea who Simon the leper was. He, he must have been a leper that Jesus cleansed. Otherwise, they would never have entered his, his house. Some of the older commentators say that this Simon was apparently the father of Lazarus, but we, we simply don't know. There's some leper that Jesus had healed of his leprosy. And he was willing to open, open his home so they could have this dinner in Jesus' honor. It was quite a large uh, gathering. Jesus' disciples and his friends and Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus get, gathered in this home. Now I want you to notice there are four people in the story. And John turns the spotlight on each one in turn. And I want you to notice what they were doing. Martha was serving She was serving the Lord. That was very often her worship. Service is is valid worship. Worship is simply a response to the the revelation of God that we have. And sometimes the the response it's called for is, is is to serve in some way. That was Martha. She let her hot biscuits and gravy do the do the talking for. Martha is an interesting person. I I uh, I really like Martha. She she shows up from time to time in the in the gospel accounts, and she always appears as the same type of personality. She was a a very active, industrious woman who who got things done. She was very outspoken. She said what was on her mind. It just came out. She, you know, some people dump and some people stuff. Uh, Martha was a was a dumper. She just said whatever was on her mind. Remember last week when she saw Jesus. Two days late, actually four days late, coming from uh, coming to Bethany. The first thing she said was, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She was, she was upset with the Lord. She just said whatever, whatever she thought. She was a good Jewish mother, if you know what I mean. I have a friend who used to quote a little poem that I always think of with regard to Martha. There's a, there's a sadness in her sadness when she's sad. There's a gladness in her gladness when she's glad. But the sadness in her sadness and the gladness in her gladness is nothing like her madness when she's mad. <laughs> that was Martha. Maybe a little hyperactive, but, but she had a heart to serve, wanted to serve the Lord. And so she was bustling around the table taking care of his, of his needs. And then there was Lazarus, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. This is all that's said about Lazarus, other than the fact that Jesus had raised him from the dead. Now, if we were writing the story, or if we were attending that dinner, we'd want to be talking to Lazarus. We'd want to hear about his after-death experience. 
He'd probably appear on the 700 Club or PTL or something. He'd, he'd write a book, and, and everybody would, would be concentrating on Lazarus, but, but, but John doesn't focus on Lazarus. And Lazarus didn't focus on himself. He, he was reclining with the Lord, with him, listening to him, enjoying his presence, hearing, hearing his words, worshiping by fellowshipping with him. So Martha was serving, Lazarus was fellowshipping, but I want you to know what Mary did. This is the truly astonishing thing about this story. And when we first read it, we really do not pick up the impact of what Mary did. We have to understand what actually transpired. Now listen to this. Mary took about a pint of pure nard. That's not nerd, by the way, that's nard. About a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And we read that and yawn because we really do not understand what's going on here. John says this was very expensive perfume. That's a masterpiece of understatement. That pint of nard that Mary poured over Jesus' feet was worth, in today's currency, about $10,000. Nard was, uh, was an oil, an aromatic oil, that was imported from, from the northern part of India, from the slopes of the Himalayas. It was a plant that they ground up to make this, uh, this precious oil. It's very scarce. And very expensive. Mary apparently was a was quite a wealthy woman to have in her possession a, a perfume this expensive. She had a pint of it, actually twelve ounces. But it would pint helps us, they think, to think in concrete terms. If you think of a of a pint uh, container, that was the amount of oil that she possessed. Ten thousand dollars worth of perfume. Now, women in those days, as today, wanted to, wanted to smell nice, and that's what they used nard for. It was a perfume. Uh, they've, in excavations in uh, buildings of that time, they find uh, glass mirrors and copper mirrors and eyeshadow and lipstick and all of the things that women use today to make themselves even more beautiful. And, and, and they used precious perfumes. They'd go to the Roman baths and bathe and Every day, and they'd come back, and they'd put a little dab of this, this nard behind her ear or on her neck or something, using it very, very sparingly. A pint of nard would last for dozens of years. If they had a special dinner, they might put one drop of nard on the table, and it would perfume the, the entire house. Now, I want you to understand what this dear woman did. Martha was bustling around serving... Lazarus was fellowshipping with Jesus. Mary got up from the table and walked around to Jesus' feet. And she took that little glass jar, or alabaster jar, of perfume, not so big. And she poured out $10,000 worth of perfume on our Lord's feet. And then she got down on her hands and knees and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, women of noble stature didn't, didn't do that sort of thing. They had servants to wash feet. 
And uh, women in that part of the world didn't let their hair down. She had long hair, apparently kept it up in a bun or something, and she would let it, she let it down, and she, she wiped his feet with her hair. Wiped up $10,000 worth of perfume. Now, I come from Dallas, and we have a store in, in Dallas called Neiman Markup. <laughs> At least that's what we called it, Neiman Marcus. And uh, Neiman Marcus is known for encouraging people toward conspicuous consumption. You can buy his or her airplanes. Uh, you can buy his or her Angus uh, cows. Uh, you can buy a fur-lined bathtub. There are all sorts of things that you could buy from Neiman Marcus, things that you can lavish upon yourself. And that seems to be all right, at least to some people, spend that kind of money on yourself. But when Mary broke that, that jar of perfume and poured it all over Jesus' feet, that seemed to everyone in the room to be conspicuous consumption, but, but wasteful con- conspicuous consumption. Why, why would you do such a, such a thing? Now, we're told, according to John, that one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. It's interesting that John never launches into a tirade against Judas. Never. He learned well Jesus' lesson about forgiving those that despitefully use you. He's just factual. But notice the the juxtaposition of the two terms. One of his disciples, who was later to betray him, Judas Iscariot, objected. Now, interestingly enough, John says it was Judas, but in the other gospel accounts, we're told that all the disciples chimed in. They agreed with Judas, John included. Judas objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That makes sense. This is such an extravagance, such a waste. Why wasn't this money, this perfume sold and, and the money given out to, to the poor? And then John notes with uh, historical hindsight, he did not say this because he cared about, the poor, cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas had his hand in the till for for two and a half years. He'd been stealing money from the disciples. They had a bag into which they put their common uh, funds and from which they bought food and and, uh, lodging and paid for lodging. And and, and he'd been stealing money for years. He wanted to buy a piece of property. Had it in his mind to build a little plot of land and a house where he could retire after Jesus became king. And the pickings were slim because there was never much money in the bag. And now he sees dollar signs behind his eyes. This 10,000 will put him over the top. He realizes that this money could could be stolen. See, John says that his motives were impure. He's not concerned about about the poor. He was concerned about himself. He wanted to lavish this money on himself. Now notice Jesus' reply in verse 7. Let her alone, Jesus replies. Let her be. It was meant that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. That's a a quotation from Deuteronomy 15. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
Now, he's not endorsing poverty, and he's not encouraging the disciples to be indifferent to poverty. Jesus gave to the poor out of his own poverty. He's simply saying that poverty will always be with us. You'll always have opportunities to show love to the poor, but you don't have long to show love to me. Your opportunities are limited because he knew that within the week he would be crucified. And then he says something very interesting about Mary. It was meant that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You understand what he's saying? Mary understood something that not one other disciple in that room understood. These were the the, the major theologians of Jesus' day. John, Matthew, Peter. Not one of them saw what this woman saw, and that is the relationship between the Passover and Jesus' death. You see that? She saw it. She realized that it was not an accident that he was going to perish at the Passover feast. She saw the connection because he was the Passover lamb. See, for centuries, Jesus or the Jews had, 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 had celebrated the Passover feast in basically the, the same way. It all went back to, to, to the exodus from Egypt. And as you know, God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt and then through the Red, Red Sea. They were told to take a lamb and kill it and then put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the gateposts. And the death angel would pass over that house and they would be spared. Their salvation would come from the, the blood of that lamb. And from the 15th century B.C. and and on, Jews had celebrated the Passover, looking forward to the time when one man would come and die for the nation, when he would be the Passover lamb who would give up his life for the nation. And the death angel would pass over them. Their sins would be forgiven. And they'd have salvation and eternal fellowship with God. And Mary saw that. She saw the issue. She saw that he was going to die for the sins of the nation. And so she saved up that little jar of perfume, that $10,000 jar of perfume, to lavish on our Lord as a way of saying he is worth anything. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and majesty. She saw through it all. She saw his worth. She saw his value. $10,000 was peanuts compared to what Jesus would do. I, as I thought through this uh, action, I couldn't help but think of George Beverly Shea's song, the song which we sang earlier. It's number 446 in your hymn book, if you'd like to turn back to that song. song. Mary could well sing this song. She understood. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. As Jesus put it, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So what if you have $10,000 worth of perfume? So what if you have $100,000 in your retirement plan? So what if you have a million dollars to your name? So you have property, a place to retire to. You have it all, but you lose your own soul. 
It's not worth it. It's not worth it. The only thing that's worth it is the lamb that was slain. And that's why Bevshe and Mary could sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I've mentioned before my friend Bob Young, who was in a <clears throat> doctoral program in a university on the West Coast. He came up to his orals and flunked them because, as they said, you don't have a worldview that we can endorse. We can't send you out with a degree from our school when, when, when you don't look at things the way we look at them. And, and the difference was that Bob was a Christian. He had a Christian worldview. And as he heard those words, he, he, he thought of the $40,000 he had invested in that Ph.D. And, and he thought of four years of his life and, and the work and agony and the pressure that it had put on his family to complete that degree. And then he thought of the words of the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have, have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than a Ph.D. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. And he chuckled. He laughed. And the professor that he was talking to thought he'd lost his mind, so he hurried him out of the room, and Bob just explained, no, no, it's all right. I've just, I've just come to realize what's valuable in this life. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. There may be times that we have to make decisions based upon obedience to him that will cost us dearly in terms of money and appreciation and praise and approbation and acceptance, going to cost us. Bethsaida says, I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. Do you believe that? I was taught in, in psychology classes in college that there is a hierarchy of needs that are absolute. That we have to be accepted. We have to be loved. We need friendship. We need sex. We need food. We need water. Those are absolute needs. But if I read the scriptures right, there's really only one absolute need, and that's Jesus. We don't need anything else. I don't need acceptance. You don't need a mate. God will give you a joy that's outside of that kind of physical provision for your need. We don't need anything but Jesus. Remember in the earlier, the, the, the incident that Luke records when, when Martha was bustling around the kitchen serving and Mary was sitting down listening to Jesus? And, Mary, and Martha got all upset. She said, Jesus, make Martha help me. And Jesus said, no. She said, Martha, Martha, you're, you're worried about a lot of things. There's really only one thing that's, that's essential and, and literally what he said, there's only one thing that's needed. And Mary has chosen the good part. The one thing that's needed is to love and worship the Lord Jesus. We don't need 
anything else. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want anything. We don't have to clamor for anything. Psalm 131 says we can be like a weaned child on his mother's breast. We don't have to be clamoring, crying out for someone to meet our needs. We can be satisfied in him. Psalmist in Psalm 131 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I don't need anything else. So you see, that's why, why Jesus is so valuable. That's why he's worth everything. That's why we can say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches and toll. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts cry out to you in, in worship and in love and in appreciation for all that you've done for us. We're so reluctant to give up anything because we think that's, that's, what, that's where our worth lies. These are the things that are valuable. Teach us, Lord, that there's really only one thing that's needed. There's only one really worthwhile person in his life, and that's our Lord Jesus, who gives us worth and value when we cling to him. Teach us to worship him, consider him precious. We ask in Jesus' name.